I had a call from Malcolm Muggeridge this morning, who said, watch out for the tests. Oh, which tests, said I. The infamous Balmoral tests, said he. Apparently, the royal family routinely subject all their guests to secret tests to find out whether someone is acceptable or not acceptable, you or non-you, part of the gang or not part of the gang. <laughs> Apparently, it's ruthless. That's sport in itself. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode two, titled The Balmoral Test. Margaret Thatcher and her husband Dennis are invited to holiday at the Royal Residency in rural Scotland. Lady Diana Spencer is also invited to join for a weekend. But who will pass the infamous Balmoral Test? Now, we will cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't watched episode two yet, well, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, on how the team approached the Charles and Diana story. We had to go into this series with a level of skepticism about not just the material, but who was writing the material, how it was commissioned, that we have not had to do with previous series. We'll also hear from Head Set Decorator, Alison Harvey. Just in those four perfume bottles, you sort of see the decades of, of when those women were feeling their most fabulous. But first, I was lucky enough to sit down with Paul Whittington, who directed The Balmoral Test. Now, on this podcast, we've heard time and time again from everyone involved, the collaboration between all the departments is key to bringing the story to life. So I asked Paul what it was like to join the Crown family as a new director for season four. It's a fantastic canvas to work on. And you're given a, you are given a freedom as well. I mean, Peter has this brilliant ability. I don't quite know how he does it, but to be all over it and at the same time to give you freedom to go out and direct and do your work and it encourages that and trusts you to do that. And it is also a show in which you do get to execute your story exactly how you want to, yeah. you know. And that doesn't always mean, that doesn't always mean spending money on huge set pieces or pieces of kit or numbers of extras or, or whatever it is. The collaboration is all about what is the story we're trying mm -hmm. to tell? What's the human story that we're trying to tell here? And whatever we feel the best way to tell it is, that's that's what we'll be able to do. Let's talk about the Balmoral Test, episode sure. two. And you're, you're two women who are off to Balmoral <laughs> yeah. to be tested. Yeah. And, you know, one of the big things of this is obviously the introduction to Diana and that cloud that covers this entire season you know we know the outcome of this mm. this situation this woman's life and stuff and so that's you know I, from talking to Peter that that's weighed so heavily on how he portrays her but also making sure there's a truth there as well and mm. but for you in terms of of approaching her as a character mm. and I imagine trying to remove your own personal experience as a human being and, yep. and witnessing her as a real person. Is that an easy thing to do as a director? Um, it is. I think once you 
take the decision that you're not actually shooting an icon, particularly in the, in the story that I was telling. The early days of Charles and Diana, it's Diana as the, as the nursery school assistant and the young woman who cleaned her sister's flat. This is not the icon that we now know. And you've almost, you've got to free yourself of Diana the icon and go, okay, so this is a a young woman, 18, 19 years old, a bit goofy, a bit (laughs) mischievous, romantic, Mm -hmm. you know, and a bit immature and, and actually quite grounded in many ways. And actually, let's just take her as a character at that moment in time in 1980, 1981. Yes, of course, look at who she is and the world in which she inhabits and the family that she came from. But don't saddle her with the baggage of the next 15, 20 years of her life, Mm. um, because that's not happened yet, (laughs) clearly. So actually, it's quite freeing to boil it down into this young woman falling in love with this with this guy and see how that story kind of unfolds and, and take it uh, step by step. Do you have a busy summer? I know I'll be in London for most of it. Embarrassingly available, if that's what you're asking. I'll be in Zimbabwe for a couple of weeks and then Scotland. But perhaps we can meet again in the autumn. Oh dear, you'd rather not. It's just such a long way away. It'll fly by. No, it won't. It'll drag horribly. But all good things come to those who wait. And placing her in that environment of somewhere like Balmoral, you know, which has Mm. kind of... has this kind of historical relevance to that picking and choosing mentality of that family in terms of being paraded in front of people and seeing whether they can cope and how they react to it as well. Absolutely. And I think what we learned was and what we decisions we took was that actually Diana, she was from that world. You know, what's interesting about Thatcher, when she goes there, that's not Thatcher's world, but this is Diana's world. She's from that kind of stock, if yeah. you like. So she knew, even though later on she was very much a kind of metropolitan figure, if you like, and that's, that's where she... I guess felt most at home, but she she knew the country life and she kind of knew what was expected of her. Mm. I think the other thing about this episode that I think is brilliant is the tone of it because mm. you have these all these two women have three women, but you mm. know in terms of Diana and Thatcher, very different sort of totally written and I mean the comedy around Gillian mm. Thatcher, particularly in this episode, is so good. You can tell that she's having fun playing with that as well. Yeah, it was great fun. And you're absolutely right about the tone. I loved the tone of this piece. And we worked on it a lot, of course, all the way through. But it was there in the in the first draft of the, of the script that I read. And it was the tone of it that really, in many ways, it took me by surprise. That's what's brilliant about, I think, about this show and Peter's writing is that it's always surprising you. So really, this is the first... I mean, we meet Margaret Thatcher in episode one, but this is the first time we get to spend any time with her. And I couldn't believe when I was reading the script that I didn't think I would ever say this, but I like, I'm really liking the Thatchers. (laughs) I I really like them. (laughs) They're they're really good fun. They're really entertaining. And actually, I'm with them. I'm with the Thatchers here because I I can empathise with them. We've all been to a party where we feel like we don't really fit fit in and we're kind of worried about it. Wearing the wrong dress. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, I get them. I get the Thatchers. So it's a brilliant way in because, of course, later on and throughout the season, we explore 
so many other things about Thatcher and, and what she did and what, yeah. what she did to the country. But as a way in, as a way to invite you into that character and that couple, if you like, I thought it was brilliant. And so that was always there in the script. And then really it was just a, a gift to then sort of play with it and think about, OK, so every time we see the Thatchers, they've got to be at odds with the environment. That's, of course, the way Gillian and, and Stephen Boxer, who plays Dennis, play it. There's a physicality about that, but it's in everything about what Amy Roberts did with the costumes. The colours are wrong. You know, the colours are all wrong. The <laughs> fabrics are all wrong. The, she is just at odds mm -hmm. with this environment the whole time. No, no, dear, I like to do that myself, especially for my husband. I'm sorry, ma'am. Thank you. Unpacking your back? What was she thinking? That's her wife's job. And two bedrooms. I know, it's all very odd. Are we allowed to sleep in one bed? I shall go and check with the protocol sheet. And what do you think 6pm is? Drinks or dinner? Oh, who knows? What do we wear? What the heck? Who cares? No, I care. Every house has rules and places like this are all about what you wear and when. On the plane you said there were tests. Oh, so you did hear what I said? Of course I heard what you said. I don't need a look at you to show you I'm listening to what you're saying. Well, it might be nice. I don't have the time to be nice. Well, I'm sure to worry about it all would be to fail the tests. 6pm is drinks before dinner. Dinner is black tie. Ergo, drinks are black tie. I couldn't help noticing, ma'am, you didn't bring any outdoor shoes. That's right. The idea of Julian as well as, as Thatcher, as a director working with an actor on a very big, larger-than-life character, so to speak, almost yeah. kind of hard to make your own, I guess, your own Thatcher, sure. but I think it's, you've all done an amazing job in doing so. It's a, a remarkable transformation, isn't it? You know, in every way, physically, tonally, voice, everything. It's, it's an incredible transformation. And I remember... Actually, the first time it really struck me and, and I think struck us as a production was before we even started shooting when we were doing camera tests. She'd obviously been doing a lot of work prior to that in terms of movement, posture. She'd been doing the voice, but a lot of physical movement training, yeah. if you like, to get into, into character. And we lined up a long shot uh, sort of on, on one of the sets at Elstree and we turned over and said, OK, Gillian, can you just step into shot now? And I'm not exaggerating, she stepped in. And there was a kind of palpable intake of breath of everybody around the monitor. God. And she was almost in silhouette at that point. Yeah. So you had the hair and the makeup and the costume were all exquisite. You know, you had the hair. But there was something of just everything about the way she stood, the way she held her hands, the way the handbag hung on her arm it was really striking and it, it just felt like it sounds a bit corny but it felt like Thatcher's in the room it really did and, th and then we said okay great can you now just walk towards the camera and stand on this mark and Thatcher had this very very unique way of walking she was like you, she was always it's always like she was in a hurry to get somewhere <laughs> and then Gillian just sets off on this and barrels along towards camera <laughs> 
<laughs> you were walking backwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's almost like you kind of involuntary. We kind of started laughing, not because it was comedic, but you know when you see something that's so exciting, you almost have this reflex to laugh, and it was quite brilliant. I mean, so as a physical transformation, it was incredible in every way because she's worked out every aspect of it, how she holds the bag, how she would pick up a pen, how she might put her jewellery on. It's all meticulously worked out. So, But what's brilliant about it is that it is incredibly technical in that way, but she gets the technicality to a point where she can then free herself of mm-hmm. it and then she's free to play and then yeah. she's free to... Because that's all there. That's somehow already instinctively in there yeah and then she has the freedom to to explore and and to emotionally go where she needs to go what size are you five oh that's handy me too with stalking the trick really is to disappear into nature to preserve the element of surprise so next time you might not wear bright blue it means the stag can see you or wear scent. Means he can smell you. Ooh! Now he can hear you too. I could go back and change. Oh, that's an idea. Yes, if you hurry, you could make it back in time for lunch. I'll be as quick as I can. And this wonderful narrative of this stag hunt as well, mm. which kind of mm. It's such a clever way within the in the episode to say a lot more than it just being out to hunt a stag. Absolutely. I think it's so clever. Yeah, yeah. and it was important for us for that stag to become a character in the piece and we, we would revisit it at certain points throughout the episode. What it means metaphorically is for... It's for everybody to make their own judgment on, I think. (laughs) I like that. It's not mine anymore. It's yours to interpret the way you want to interpret it. But it's lovely as well, you know, in terms of the way that nothing ever feels rushed as well. Mm. And I think with this episode in particular, the way that the landscape is allowed to breathe and and to kind of almost show off in a way reinstates that idea that they feel so at home here and this is their natural habitat almost, so to speak. I think so. And I and I think that sort of that elemental atmosphere was really important to the atmosphere of the whole episode and an opportunity to set an episode that is predominantly away from the palace mm. and from Downing Street and from London. So to get up there and literally to kind of breathe the air, I think it was always a really important element of the episode and to experience the sort of anthropology of that culture. On this podcast, we lift the curtain on what goes on behind the scenes of The Crown and shine a spotlight on the amazingly talented people who create the world of the royals that we see on screen. I had the chance to speak with headset decorator Alison Harvey, who's been sourcing props for The Crown from all over the world since season one. Alison, thank you so much for joining me today. Do you mind sort of explaining what the role of a, a set decorator designer is? So we, well, I and the team, start off by talking to Martin Designer. Yeah. Right at the beginning of the season and having a chat through 
the feel. He'll have some kind of key references, some maybe some film stills or something that he maybe has discussed with the directors. Mm. And then we, as a department, kind of inhabit the spaces that are chosen. So we flesh out what is on the page and then what is unspoken in yeah. the script. So it's to try and bring the life and the soul to a space and create an environment where the actor feels they can do their best work. So we'll dress the drapery, the carpets, the things they pick up, the things in the drawers, the perfume they wear. Um, Cutlery they use. Yeah, you know, just everything that, <laughs> yeah. you know, we do the animals, we do guns. We do everything that isn't sort of solid and isn't an actor. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind you. of their world, really. And that encompasses both sets that are built um, at, at studios, yeah. but then also real locations as well, yes. which I imagine that you have to go in... There's a lot of big, grand houses that are used, but yes. I imagine you have to design them and dress those yes. on yes. top of what's already there almost. Yes, because we have to be era-specific. Yeah. So, I mean, at the beginning, we did a, a big room of references from each year. And then you see how the kind of the colour palettes change, how the tastes change. So, you know, we've been from the 50s through now to the early 90s. Yeah. And so how different colours are in vogue, different patterns are in vogue... And then you get a sort of sense at a glance, which you then try and inhabit yourself mm-hmm. as to what feels right, what feels 80s, what feels 70s, and where those characters would sit within that decade. And whether so Princess Margaret kind of got pretty locked into the sort of late 60s, 70s, because that was her big heyday. Yeah. But Diana is much more of that 80s moment, in that, and she being such younger, we were trying to get that difference between her and Charles and give her a space that felt more girlish, more naive just a bit more vulnerable, I suppose. When we have, say, photographs of the real queen sat in a situ yes. and you know that that's going to be filmed, that that room's going to be filmed, do you try and replicate as much as possible what's been captured? Yes. I mean, it's an essence of... Yeah. So it's it's the right period furniture, it's the right flavour. So different palaces have different identities. So Sandring will be more relaxed, Belmoral, more baronial and more... Because Queen Victoria sort of furnished those later but then you've got Windsor which is a bit more Victorian but Buckingham Palace is a bit more French. You mentioned Balmoral in episode two which very much focuses on Balmoral. There's a big character in that episode. I don't think I've seen that much footage so to speak of inside Balmoral. It feels like this, it's a place that they very they keep very private. Yes. Does that allow you more creative control in terms of creating what you imagine it to be like inside. And- well, I think we went back to Queen Victoria when there are sort of stills. And again, I sort of, I guess, extrapolated from that that not that much would have been changed. Yeah. It just falls apart around them slightly, I think. So, I mean, we did bring in a lot of tartan because we know that that's... Yeah. There, is, there is a lot of tartan. <laughs> yeah. Actually, for real. Yeah. You know, so it looks a bit like... If we didn't know that, you would possibly shy away from that. I think it was too obvious as a sort of statement. But no, all the carpets are tarred. And I, you know, so. Amazing. The stag is a big emblem. Absolutely. In, and it's got an iconic position within this episode as well. Can you talk a little bit about recreating that yes. and yeah, how that was done? The whole kind of excitement around the breakfast table in the morning is it's a 14-point stag, which is the oldest, most prized stag. So they're rare. So obviously we couldn't necessarily fight... The, the stag had to be in several kind of permutations. It had to be dead, caped in action, where they take the, the skin off to mount the head. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to be presented as a trophy on the wall 
already stuffed. And then it also had to be liftable and movable by actors from mm-hmm. a pony. So we had various configurations of this. We found an antique stag's head that we then had to remove the antlers from because that was the 14-point stag. Yeah. So we had a pair of 14-point antlers, which we then had to basically screw onto fake or live dead deer. So yeah. we had to cut that with the footage they shot of the real stalking scene, Yeah, which then visual effects had to superimpose onto the live footage because the live footage didn't have a 14-point antler. So there's sort of this kind of melding of... There must have been sort of... We had two prosthetics, one kind of green cutout that looked like the shape of a stag that the visual effects could pin their their effects to, one that was part of the the estate cull that was a a dead, freshly killed stag, but that didn't have the right antlers. So then we had to screw these antlers basically to various stags in, in various states. So... I mean, it's just complicated. And that's just one tiny thing. We take so much for granted when we watch a scene. So, you found it. Yes. Well done. He's a a beauty. They have Diana to thank. No, I did nothing. No, you you spotted him, not me. But you shot him, sir. It wasn't an easy shot. No. It was brilliant. Have you got an Easter egg you're most proud of? I suppose all the perfumes I quite like, the perfumes. The Queen had a Dior perfume that was made for Grace Kelly. I know it's a Creed, sorry, it's a Creed, made by Creed. So the, the Queen has that, uh-huh. allegedly. So we, we buy one for her and that... What is nice about the packaging of that is very of her heyday as well. So it's 50s. The Queen Mum is something like Guerlain or something from the 40s and her bottle encapsulates her. And then Diana was very 80s again. Margaret uh, Margaret had a... Chanel? No. I think um, I thought it was Chanel. Again, it was a very very 60s bottle. Yeah. But yeah, so, so each kind of perfume design bottle feels quite like the character. So you just in those four perfume bottles, you sort of see the decades of, of when those women were feeling their most fabulous. Have you ever been able to get hold of the real things? I've bought some real letters. Oh, wow. So that we can look at the calligraphy of how they, you know, with Princess Diana, how she, her handwriting. Yeah. Some of Margaret Thatcher's, some of Harold Wilson's actual correspondence. Just so that we can get as much detail as we can, as correct as we can, so that the actors feel as close to the real person as possible, I suppose. What's been the trickiest thing to either source or make, would you say? Princess Margaret's body double with removable lungs. We had to make a fake Princess Margaret body. Okay. When she's having a lung operation, yeah. there had to be a kind of cavity where lungs could be removed. So, I mean, that's quite obscure. It's not, that's not something you're going to find on eBay as well. Not so, so much. Like, <laughs> not so much. That's going to be something you're going to have to make. Yeah. Balmoral is not only a huge part of this episode as a physical setting, but a social setting as well. I spoke once more to the Crown's Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, about the history of Balmoral and its relevance to the royal family. So Balmoral was this sort of romanticised private estate that Queen Victoria and Albert found. 
there's no expectation, and same with Sandringham, that they really have to do work there. It's it's meant to be this, I mean, they go every August, September, that period of eight weeks. Their, their family members are in and out. They have cousins staying, and Charles's friends come up every summer. And it's a, it's a, re, it's a genuine sort of family reunion every August. And so they can relax. I mean, she obviously still works, but I think she probably reduces her hours and spends more time outside with her family. And they do all of their proper aristocratic sporting of stalking and shooting and things like that. So it's their playground. We get a real sense of, and, and tell me how much kind of you, you know, the research that went into this, the kind of parlour games that they play, you know, the... The, the Ibble Dibble. Ibble Dibble is just... Ibble Dibble was great. Number three, Ibble Dibble with two Dibble Ibbles. Calling number one, Ibble Dibble with no Dibble Ibbles. Okay. Oh, Good luck, you, Prime yeah. Minister. Mm. Right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Number one, Ibble Dibble, with no Dibble Ibbles, calling number ten, Ibble Dibble, with six. Dibble Ibbles. Did I get that right? The parlor games are great because, I mean, personally, I love that kind of structured fun. But you can see that for Thatcher, it's just forced fun. I mean, there's nothing enjoyable about this. And again, it was, I suppose, a part of these sort of tests. You know, Harold Wilson would muck in and really enjoy these parlor games. And... They did a whole variety of them. Charades was their favorite, but they also did ones where you'd like mime words and phrases. They were called Food for Thought and Top of the Tree. The game would sort of continue to the next day sometimes because for the word games, they'd get the guest preachers who were preaching at the local parish church the next day. Oh, wow. To weave in the words from the game into the The sermon. sermon, And then the younger royals would be like... (laughs) You know, in the background. Uh, so <laughs> we had to think about what kind of games could work on screen. And David Hancock, who was a staff writer on our team at the time, he told us about Ibble Dibble, which he used to play with his family. And it seemed to us like the kind of game that Thatcher would have found like, incredibly uncomfortable. We don't actually know if the royal family play Ibble Dibble, but we do know that Thatcher had been forced to play these other parlor games like charades, even though she hated it. It's almost like a testing ground for people as well, though, yeah. isn't it? Hence the Balmoral Test being the, the title of the yes, episode. Yes, exactly. It's, a, it's the sink or swim house, essentially. <laughs> you know, in terms of like the research that you've done on this, does, is that what kind of how people have referred to it? Is that- yeah, and it's as early as series one when we were researching the courtship of Philip and Elizabeth, they claim that the final vetting place was Balmoral for Philip and it was whether or not he was going to get along there. We started learning about this early, but but it was in the Charles the Bachelor years research that we learned more and more about the expectation of he would bring a woman up hmm. and they would think, oh, a grand castle in the Highlands, there'll be fun, beautiful balls. And they do dress and there is the Gillies Ball and all these things. But they would go up thinking this was going to be kind of a social event and then 
find themselves in waders in the middle of the lock, you know, watching Charles fish. And a lot of women would go away being like, God bless, not for me. So when Diana comes and she really mucks in, which she did, they are like, thank God, finally. After so many sort of attempts with other people, we really feel this this girl is a part of us. Now, mind you, she's always sort of been. She was born and raised in a house on Sandringham Estate. Her father was an Aquary. Her maternal grandmother is the Queen Mother's lady-in-waiting. She's Lady Diana Spencer at this time. She is not your average Joe. So she sort of knows that it's expected of her to get down and dirty a little bit, and she does it. Now, what's sort of great about this is she does it knowing, I think, that this was a bit of a test. Does she? She hates it. She hates it. But she pulls it off, and what you will find once they're married is she is a city girl. This is not her jam at all. (laughs) And she has managed, you know, Thatcher was incapable of pretending. Yeah. But Diana is very, very good at that. The whole subject of Charles and Di has this worldwide fairy tale emotional connection with the world in terms of how it started, what it was, and we all know the the terrible tragedy of how it ended. But when you are going into portraying these characters in a dramatised series, <laughs> I can't imagine how difficult it was to to know how to portray them and not portray them, to know what to say and what not to say. And I just wanted to ask about the research that went into that, how close you got to them or their... Mm-hmm closest confidence or whatever and and how you kind of navigate that this is a it's a difficult subject and two difficult characters partly because so much has been written about them on their behalf and everyone has an opinion yeah exactly so um we had to go into this series with a level of skepticism about not just the material but who was writing the material how it was commissioned that we have not had to do with previous series Our research team got younger with this series, partly because we wanted people who didn't grow up really with Diana being a figure in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so they came into it not having an opinion either way, which I think was actually very important to try to reduce the inherent prejudices that we, we in the 90s and 80s who grew up with her have. Diana authorized a book that she provided recordings for. It is essentially her autobiography. That was the Andrew Morton book, Her True Story, in 1992. So when she died, he was allowed to say, yes, she authorized it, and yes, these were her words, essentially. So in some ways, it's very useful. You have interviews with her, and she's taking you through her first time at Balmoral. But she's also, she's writing it in hindsight. She's writing it in 1992, or 1991, I suppose, Mm -hmm. when it's published in 92. So she's doing it with the knowledge that things aren't working out, that she is angry, that they are cheating on each other, and so on and so forth. So then you have to say, okay, great, she's saying this did happen, but can I trust the emotion behind what she's saying? Or do I have to then go back and try to just rework it as she would have felt in 1980? Mm -hmm. And then Charles does a sort of tit for tat, and he gets Jonathan Dimbleby to write his authorized biography, and it goes back and forth. And it's that's all very useful for sort of dates and places and events and how many dates they went on, for example. They went on 13 dates before he proposed. Wow. 
So those sorts of things are incredibly useful. Mm. But it's then about trying to understand the emotions that were actually there at the time rather than the manipulated ones that were tainted because of how bad things got. One of the ways of doing it is to talk to people. We consult frequently with a former staff member of hers, and that's very helpful to understand how her life shifted, particularly from the 80s to the 90s as they're splitting up. They're not going to be doing things as a couple much anymore. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't there in the early years. So we sort of have to start from scratch again there. So for us, at least, particularly for the first half of the series, I think investigating her childhood was the most useful thing to understand Diana when we meet her and her mentality in the first few years of marriage. So I suppose I must have seen you growing up on the estate at Sandringham when you lived in the, the cottage there. Yes, sir. Where do you live now? London, Earl's Court, in a flat with three girlfriends. I'm the bossy landlady. Uh, are you bossy? <laughs> I like things to be neat and tidy. Quite right, so do I. So I come from the army, sir? (laughs) The navy. And I'm the one asking the questions. (laughs) Sorry. How would you describe her? You're younger than me, but was she in your kind of... Yeah, I think she was... Part of your growing up. She was... um, I was born in 82. I think she was, by the time I was cognizant of things, the people's princess. I feel so bad for her, honestly, and I feel so bad for Charles because... They are unbelievably similar people. They felt unloved in childhood. They felt abandoned and misunderstood. What they really needed, and what I think you see with Charles's success with Camilla, is they didn't need to marry themselves. They needed to marry people who could offer the support and the love that they, in all honesty, were sort of incapable of offering because they were so inward-looking. The crucial moments, really, of Diana's life is that when she's born, she's the third girl. You don't want girls. When you're in an aristocratic family, you want boys. Mm. They're going to be the ones to inherit. So just before she had been born, they had lost a, a son the same day as as he was born. So she always felt kind of like a disappointment. She came mm. along, and this was way before you knew what gender your child was going to be, and she came along and was like, oh, great, another one. And then finally after her, her brother Charles is born. So I think she she sort of enters life a disappointment. And her mother falls in love with somebody else and asks for a trial separation. And in the end, she loses custody of her children. There are many stories of Diana watching her mother drive away she's too young to understand this is permanent, and she sits at the same step every day for weeks just waiting for her mother to come back. Her father, I don't think, was a a bad man, but I think he was an aristocratic father with four children. You know, they were raised by a string of nannies, and Mm. it gets to the point where she finds out from the press that her father's remarried. And funnily enough, he's remarried the daughter of the only author she really loves, which is Barbara Cartland. So as her mother's left and she's left in this realm with her sisters, fantasy becomes a really big part of her life. She wants to be liked, she wants to be loved, and she will manipulate in order for that to happen. And one of the paths she takes is this obsession with Barbara Cartland romance novels. So by the time she meets Charles, the only real understanding she has of the opposite sex is fantasy romance. She has no understanding of what it actually means to be a companion to someone, a partner, to help guide them through their emotional issues Mm -hmm. and frustrations of the day. And I think 
This is a girl who was emotionally quite stunted at the moment that her mother left. And essential to understanding why she says yes to Charles is that he cannot divorce her. He can't. It is unheard of that the heir to the throne will divorce a wife. So Diana feels that this provides her inescapable safety and comfort. She's a triumph. In the history of Balmoral, no one has ever passed a test with such flying colors. Well, well, well. Rave reviews from the whole ghastly Politburo. Anne, Papa, Margot, Mummy, Granny. The problem they, the, the royal family, made in approving Diana so much as, as a partner for Charles is she was 19 and she was born into aristocracy and lived in the royal estate and she knew, they thought she knew what would have been asked of her. Mm. They believed she would be docile. They believed she would be managed and Charles could shape her into whatever he wanted. And well, he didn't even want to. Well, that's exactly. I mean, th there are many problems with this, but the expectation was she knows us. It's like keeping it in the family. She knows us. She knows our ways. This is the smoothest option we have. And she's young and beautiful and vibrant and sweet and kind. And they very severely underestimated her. And as you say, very severely overestimated Charles's sort of ambitions as a husband. The Duke of Edinburgh has asked to see you. Then I was summoned for a conversation with Papa in the hanging room where, oblivious to the grotesque symbolism, might as well have been me strung up and skinned. You asked to see me? Diana Spencer. What advice, her? Made the family position painfully clear. asking themselves that. She's a child. I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Paul Whittington, Alison Harvey, and Annie Salzberger. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Something Else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode three of season four called Fairy Tale. A young Diana Spencer's dreams come true when she accepts the marriage proposal of Prince Charles. She moves into the palace to begin her new life. But will the marriage really be the stuff of which fairy tales are made?
What can you tell us about the actual wedding? We're not that far on yet, but for now, we're delighted, really. Mm. Why, well, see, you're going to bring a deep and lasting joy to the nation. And if I may say, you both look very much in love. Oh, yes, absolutely. Whatever in love means. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.